0: From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. On today's show, we're talking about open government, which means talking about a modern American legend. That's right, Florida Man. Now, you've heard the headlines. Florida Man throws alligator into Wendy's drive-thru window. Florida Man arrested for trying to shoot down Hurricane. Florida Man breaks into jail to hang out with friends. Now, these are all real stories, but Florida Man, as a meme, is something of a myth. Florida may have a seemingly unique brand of misbehavior, but people do this kind of stuff all across the country, believe me. No, the reason you've heard about Florida, man, is that the state of Florida has some of the nation's strongest sunshine laws. That's not named after the sunshine state, but the basic idea that the public's business is best done in public, in broad daylight. Sunshine, as the saying goes, is the best disinfectant for the ills of corruption, mismanagement, and graft. In Florida, for example, police are required to release much more information much earlier in the process than in other states. So news editors and reporters can simply call down to the local PD or walk down to the station and get that day's Florida man story. And that's how the legend was born. In North Carolina, sunshine laws aren't as strong. Both law enforcement and public employee records are notoriously opaque, something we've covered on this show before. But two sets of laws, open meetings law and public records law, do work to keep local governments transparent and accountable. Open meetings law requires that if a quorum, meeting, a majority, of a board meets to do the public's business, it has to be a public meeting. That could mean a regularly scheduled meeting of Wilmington City Council or the New Hanover School Board or even if just three of the five county commissioners meet with other local leaders to discuss an issue. These meetings have to be announced, and someone has to be there to take minutes to record a rough understanding of what happened, although many governments now film and archive the meetings as well. Now, there are exceptions, closed sessions, reserved for a short list of reasons, but in general, when public officials meet to do public business, they have to do it in public. Public records laws work along similar lines with similar exceptions emails, texts, meeting notes, documents, presentations. If it's created by a government body or sent to or from one, it's usually public unless the content is protected. Things like personnel, material, health information, student records, and so on. The laws and the case law surrounding them lay out some things pretty clearly. But there's also a lot of gray areas, and a lot of what journalists do, a lot of their relationship with the government employees we call PIOs, or press officers, takes place under rules that are open to interpretation. Okay, so that's the crash course in open government. But on today's show, we wanted to put that theory alongside of some practice, to go behind the scenes a little bit and talk about how some of these laws have played a role in our reporting. To do that, I'm joined by WHQR's own Rachel Keith, Rachel brings not only her own reporting experience with open government laws, but she also recently sat down with Dr. Brooks Fuller, who teaches journalism at Eline University and directs the North Carolina Open Government Coalition. Fuller is a go-to for reporters, and even everyday residents, who have questions about how to get public records from their government, and how to navigate those pesky gray areas in the law. He also helps governments, too, when they have questions about best practices for being transparent and accountable. And you'll hear some quotes from Rachel's conversation with Dr. Fuller in this segment of the show. All right, with that, let's get into it. Rachel, thanks for being with us. Thank you. All right, so we're gonna talk about all different kinds of government transparency from open records to open meetings to the First Amendment, but to avoid getting too wonky, uh, I want to have some, you know, real-world examples. And one of the first things that came up when we were talking about the show before we recorded was an issue we've had with Cape Fear Community College and the New Hanover County School District when it comes to getting employees to talk to us. Tell me a little bit about this.
1: Yes, so they, both those institutions have specific policies codified about going through a marketing director or the chief communications officer to arrange interviews. So policy 5040 of New Hanover County Schools, which was adopted in last August, says the school system employees must receive approval from the chief communications officer or superintendent prior to sharing information with the media. And then if we look at CFCCs, it's in this uh, employee handbook. It says all media interviews with college personnel must be approved by the Community Relations Office ahead of time. When contacted by members of the news media, employees should notify the Community Relations Office first and respond to questions only when they have sufficient information to give factual, accurate responses. So this is problematic when we're looking to talk to employees directly about their experience or about their domain of academia that would help us tell a specific story. And we are getting into how are you liking your job? What could be improved? That's when it gets, I'm sure, the institution Uh, wants to make sure that there's a message being portrayed, but we want people to be honest. And here is Dr. Brooks Fuller of the Open Government Coalition weighing in on this.
2: Governmental bodies have to be really wary from a First Amendment perspective of chilling the speech of public employees. Public employees do not relinquish their constitutional rights once they take government employment. Numerous federal courts and the Supreme Court have been very, very clear about that. Blanket media relations policies that prohibit public employees from speaking about their areas of expertise can be thrown out as unconstitutionally overbroad. And numerous federal courts have done that, too.
0: We've had this conversation with the city of Wilmington, with New Hanover County and, and now the school district, and they've offered varying explanations for this kind of policy. Everyone has their own, as you pointed out, everyone has their own policy. But I think from a reporter's point of view, you can see this two ways. You can see it as facilitation so for example my experience with the city of wilmington and new hanover county has been along the facilitation lines it's usually we contact their pio or their public information officer which we'll get to in a second and they'll connect me with the right person they'll often sit in on the interview someone from the communications department will be there and their their attitude is that we want to make sure that you have all the right details that we know how to follow up so that you get a better story and get your questions answered 90% 90% of the time, that works really well. The problem is when you're talking about internal situations like the allegedly toxic workplace at Cape Fear Community College or New Hanover County Schools, now you basically have a representative of the administration sitting in a room with an employee while you're asking him about his relationship with the administration. So sometimes the, you know, th- these policies act as facilitation and sometimes they act as gatekeeping.
1: Yeah, that's right. And for the the New Hanover County School District recently conducted a a staff's climate survey and I had reached out to the North Carolina Association of Educators chapter in New Hanover County. Hey, would you like to send people to speak with me? I had to tell them about this policy just so that they were informed and they walked away from the table because they didn't feel comfortable.
0: Yeah. Intended or not, it had a chilling effect. And I want to take this opportunity to read a statement we got from New Hanover County Board of Education Chair Stephanie Crabill about this policy. She writes, Policy 5040 was reviewed by the Policy Committee at its June 8, 2021 meeting and subsequently approved unanimously by the board at its August 3rd, 2021 board meeting. The board believes it is good practice and professional courtesy for employees to consult with district leadership before releasing statements to the media to ensure they provide the most current and accurate information and ensure that protected students and personnel records are not shared. So, again, to be fair, the district's point of view is that this policy is in place to protect uh, confidential information and to make sure that the media gets the most accurate current information but we've seen the effect it has on employees who want to speak out about situations but might not feel comfortable with this policy in place. So that's a story we've got to continue to follow. Moving on, though, uh, we mentioned PIOs. If, you've, you know, if you're a reader of news, you'll often see quotes attributed to a press officer or a public information officer, sometimes without even their name. Um, so let's talk a little bit about PIOs.
1: Yes, and I asked uh, Dr. Fuller about the relationship between the media and uh, reporters and the public information officers, and this is what he said about their role.
2: Those public information officers serve at the pleasure of the people of North Carolina. They do not serve at the pleasure of just their employing institution. I understand that public information officers have to do their duty to maintain confidentiality of confidential information, maintain the security of information such as trade secrets or personally identifiable health information or all kinds of things like that. But at the end of the day, a public information officer's role, as I see it, is to facilitate the sharing of public information with the press that acts as an agent for the people in order to better understand the functioning of government.
0: So I can say here, PIOs will often consult an attorney about what is and what is not releasable, but ultimately, that's the person we interact with. We often, we, It's rare that we talk to the lawyer. We talk to the PIO. And so PIOs are in charge of figuring out what they can and can't release. Some of the stuff very clearly laid out by state law, but there's a ton of gray area. And that's where the relationship between the journalist and the PIO really comes into play, especially since there are things a PIO can tell you on the record. You can quote me. I will send you a statement and things they can tell you on background. Please don't quote me. But for your context, I can kind of explain what's going on. So let's give into some examples here about a gray area. Later in the show, we'll be talking to WECT reporter Michael Pratt about when a a government body's policy is maybe a bit more restrictive than the state law. But an experience you had, tell us a little bit about your reporting and how you ran into this issue.
1: Yeah, I was... I've been following the, the, the development of the Title IX survey for the new Hanover County School District for over a year. So I'm really highly invested in this survey. And I knew that they conducted it in November. And so I knew that the results were going to be out soon. And so I put in a public records request pretty early uh, on uh, late into late last year and i kept following up hey where is this do you know where this is and i would send emails to the public information officers and then i found out that it had been conducted when i was told that it hadn't and so i you know this was an issue where i'm i was thinking what, what was the right thing? Should they have sent that to me right away or sh- were they waiting to release it at a, an appropriate time? And so I was asking Dr. Fuller about this predicament.
2: A public record becomes a public record when it is created for the purposes of government business or government record keeping. It doesn't become a public record just when a public body or a minister of government of some type decides that it is fit for public consumption. Once that report is created, that is a public document and anybody should be able to get it when they file a public records request for it. It would be wrong to say that the report cannot be sent to a requester until someone says so, unless there were confidential information in that report that needed to be voted on in in terms of warranting its release
0: if you're just joining us you're listening to the newsroom from whqr public media i'm ben shockman talking to reporter rachel keith about open government all of this comes back to this idea of what a pio and usually in consulting with attorneys uh, will or won't release to the public and i think some of that some of the problem is that we have been told things like, hey, can you wait so that we can present this with context at the next meeting? And then if you have follow-up questions, then you can ask them then, or then you can see like the full documents. That's not the spirit of the law. Sometimes we agree with that because it's, it's easier. But there are other times, for example, this Title IX survey, where we wanted to report on it before it was presented to the Board of Education so that people could go to the meeting as informed citizens, and, say, and ask questions or make statements during the call of the audience sort of pre-armed with this information instead of trying to react to it after the fact.
1: Yeah, and the results were done. They were completed. There was no confidential information within just the results, uh, the findings of the quantitative portion of the survey. And so this was done in early February and I had asked for it and I still was not sent the report and I was even told that it wasn't done when it was. And so we can hear Dr. Fuller saying, as soon as it's done and you ask for it, you're able to receive it. And I did ask him a clarifying point about if it's a consultant, because there was this uh, researcher out of Palo Alto, California, Christopher Kohler, who conducted this survey and analyzed the results. So I asked him about consultants that work with public bodies.
2: It doesn't matter. The public records law in North Carolina says that any document that is made or received for the purposes of government business is a public record. So if a consultancy does a report for a county in North Carolina and that county obtains a copy of that report, that report is a public record. Basically,
0: look at it this way. If your taxpayer money paid for the time and energy and paper for the document to be created, it's yours. It belongs to the public. Now, there's as Brooks Fuller would probably say, there's a caveat here, is that as soon as we know the document exists, we can request it. But there is a window of time that government has to deliver it. And that window is incredibly stretchy.
1: It is. And he's and in the law, it says a reasonable amount of time. So let's hear what Dr. Fuller says about what that means.
2: Reasonable always changes based on the circumstances and every matter is a little bit different. So we don't have a good sense of what reasonable means for voluminous requests that require a lot of review and redaction time and things like that, then reasonable could be quite a while. I mean, it could be several months, could be a matter of weeks, could even be upwards of a year, depending on how long the request actually takes to process and fulfill and the size of the staff that's working on the request. All those things are taken into account when determining what's reasonable, but for individual documents that can be readily obtained reasonable should be a matter of days maybe a matter of weeks another thing that we always recommend to public bodies that are working on requests with voluminous requests is to just release documents as they become available
1: and in the teacher climate or staff climate survey for New Hanover County Schools, I knew that they could produce the quantitative results pretty quickly. But I knew from the there were over 900 comments that staff left and that would take some time to redact. And I understood that. And I waited for that. But they could produce the results of the quantitative part pretty rapidly.
0: Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into what happens when we feel like the amount of time has been unreasonable. Uh, but, again, a lot of this comes back to the relationship between journalists and government bodies. They often privilege the press's request. We'll see, we can see this if you go to the New Hanover County School Districts. now has an online, we appreciate this, sort of open forum where you can see every public records request. And sometimes they will prioritize a journalist's request because they know it's a pressing issue. You can actually put that in your request. Like, you know, because this is a breaking story, we want this as quickly as possible. We want to get to the bottom of this and explain this to the public. And, you know, the PIO and their team and the, and the attorneys will often work with journalists and get that information out more quickly for news outlet than they would for, say, a member of the public. And that's based on this relationship. It's not included in the state law. But because there's a relationship, like all relationships, there's a lot of gray area. And that creates some stumbling blocks, too.
1: Yeah, it does. And what Dr. Fuller said was that the media is the public. So that is important to note when we're getting these requests that we're doing the public good. So is uh, the public information officer. It's all about getting the most accurate information as quickly as possible to the most people. And that's a good way that we are a conduit for that. And I did ask Dr. Fuller about what he sees from reporters coming to him and asking him about the Open Government Coalition to help them with. And here's what he said.
2: The major stumbling blocks that we see from reporters are mostly around areas of our law where there are legitimate gray area differences in interpretation about what records ought to be public about a particular issue and what records can still be withheld from disclosure by government agencies.
0: I'll give you a perfect example of how this played out in, in my career as a journalist. At the beginning of the COVID pandemic, there was a lot of interest in how many people were in the New Hanover Regional Medical Center with COVID. And there was a lot of bipartisan pressure behind this because you had conservatives who believed that the COVID threat was being overstated. So they thought the number would be low. And you had other people who thought that maybe the number was being suppressed to avoid panicking the public. And the hospital refused to give us these numbers, citing HIPAA, which is federal law that protects individuals' healthcare records. We talked to both the Open Government Coalition and press attorneys for the North Carolina Press Association who both said that's not how HIPAA works. I can't call up and ask about a certain person and their medical history. You wouldn't want that. You'd want to no, be protected. that's
1: not ethical either. That's
0: not ethical. Um, but we can say, you know, how many people came to the hospital with broken ankles? So the hospital's argument against this was that because there was only a few number of people in the hospital with COVID, somehow if they gave us the number, we would be able to figure it out. And, you know, the press attorney said that's patently ridiculous. There was actually another lawsuit threatened, and this is where it can go if a government body doesn't release the information, uh, threatened by a number of parties around the state to release similar information for congregate senior homes and stuff like that. Ultimately, this kind of public pressure uh, changed the hospital's minds and they started actually just launching a dashboard. But that's kind of how this stuff works. People always ask, what if the government doesn't give you the information? What if they break the law? so what happens when they break the law rachel
1: yeah so the open government coalition they mediate some of these disputes because you have to go through a a mediation before you file a lawsuit typically so that's one way to get the parties to the table to discuss hey what's the deal with this information here are my qualms here is the other side's qualms he also says reporters can use pro bono legal services like the reporters committee for freedom of the press to pursue litigation and they can also pursue that through the Knight Foundation. So there are options out there, but no, this is costly and nobody wants to get to this point. So we're all hoping that we can come to an agreement: what is in the public good to release and what is confidential, personalized information that's not ethical to release. So it is this dance between the two bodies.
0: That's a good way of putting it. And I think dance is the perfect word for it because look, there will be times that the government wants information out there and needs the press. On the flip side, there could be times where we find out there are crucial issues going on, whether internally or externally, that involve a government body. We want that information out there, and maybe that government body might not be as excited about that. And so I just want to say across the board, in general, most of the government officials we've worked with have a legitimate respect for the press and the press's rights to transparency. They will often say things like, we don't like it, that this happened that you're reporting on it but we appreciate that you did you know a fair and honest job and our responsibility as journalists is to when you know we find something we think is damning is to call them and ask for their their point of view on it and i think that's when the dance works no one's 100 percent happy but we all kind of get what we need
1: yeah and i will say like you said that most of our public information officers do work with us But I will say we are having a continuing issue with public dialogue coming out of Cape Fear Community College. And, yes, we're covering some tough topics on that campus. But, I mean, it's reasonable for us to ask questions and for them to respond, even if it's we can't comment on this. Something would be better than nothing.
0: Let's leave it there because I know we'll have more reporting on CFCC. But I think I've spoken to a lot of people who have left the field of journalism and gone to the field of PR, going to the dark side, as we call it. And one thing they always say is the worst thing you can do is try to ice out an issue, is to try and turn your back on it and pretend it's not happening. Because then the story comes out and it's all this, you know, again, all this damning information, all this damning reporting, followed by no comment, which basically makes it sound like you're guilty. So food for thought that I've heard from PR officials.
1: Yeah. And it's important, again, that we all get engaged in the issues to tell the public what's going on.
0: Fair enough. Well, Rachel Keith, I know we'll hear more from you later in the show. But for now, thanks for being here. Thank you, Ben. All right. Well, later in the show, we will have more from Rachel as she sits down with UNCW Chief Diversity Officer Dr. Danielle Roseboro. But first, after the break, more on open government or perhaps not so open government with WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratt's. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Later on the show, we'll have more with WHQR's own Rachel Keith as she talks to UNCW's new chief diversity officer, but right now, a conversation with WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratts about a story he did last month that really gets into the details, the important details, of how public records work. So, Pratz, thanks for being with us.
3: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So
0: for people who didn't catch the story, and we'll have a link on the page, give people a little overview of what this is all about.
3: Yeah, so basically there's state law that requires emails, desktop calendars, any sort of record that's kept by public officials has to be made public. There are some exceptions to that rule, though, and in New Hanover County, county leaders use the term confidential in their subject heading And what this does is it pulls it out of the public records rotation. So we knew they were using this term. The city of Wilmington uses the word protected, does the same thing. We, uh, I I believe at the time, Johanna still was a... Port City Daily, she actually made a request from the city clerk to fulfill that records request. We still haven't seen that yet. I'm not sure what the status is on that. But New Hanover County, we requested all of the emails that use the term confidential for a three-month period of time. County responded basically saying, long story short, we're not going to provide that to you, stating general statute 132-2. Basically, it says that anything deemed confidential by the general statute and by the custodian of the record is not releasable. However, there is also some broader interpretations of that law. So I ended up speaking with the First Amendment attorney, as well as Brooks Fuller, the director of the uh, uh, the NC Open Government Coalition, and basically... Yes, the county can mark things confidential. I'm not saying they can't. However, they have to go through and redact. I asked for redacted records. I said, I want to see the email subject. I want to see who it was from, who it was, who it was to. The county wouldn't provide me with that. And that is under the state law. Any government entity has to provide that redacted information. So this isn't a done deal just yet. I'm still working to refile this request and ask them to once again redact these confidential pieces of the emails and show me what the rest of it is per state law. Now, here's the, the catch with this. During that three-month period of time, there was a huge number of emails sent. Among just 41 people, there were 32,904 emails sent. Now, this includes any management staff at the county level. So we're talking Chris Coudre, we're talking the head of Parks and Rec and things like that, as well as county commissioners. So 41 people total sent 32,904 emails from June 1 to August 31 of 2021 of those 9543 of them were marked confidential. So we got nearly 10,000 emails of <laughs> from county officials that the public is not able to see. And here's the thing that really stood out to me is there's no auditing process. Right, yeah. When it comes to making sure that people are actually not abusing this system. We should be clear here that not every government
0: body has the same policy. Under the stewardship of Wayne Bullard, the former attorney for New Hanover County school districts, we obviously had some contentious back and forths, but they did always supply documents when we asked for them. Mm-hmm. At one point, they delivered something like 150 to 200 emails to us, and we got every email, even emails that described students' You know, records, uh, allegations, personnel records, stuff that is protected by state law that you and I, you know, we don't debate right. that. But the emails were blacked out. Sometimes it looked like a CIA transcript yeah. where it was just a mountain of black. And sometimes it would just be, you know, you could basically get a sense of what had happened. You know, we're not asking for to see all, you know, the raw, unedited documents. But the, the point here that I think your article makes is that just by casually putting confidential in the subject line, and then saying, well, we're not going to show you. I mean, say, strictly hypothetically, just to be clear, mm-hmm. if our friends of the county are listening, you know, if something went wrong, you know, if there was an abuse of power, misuse of money, something that would just be bad for PR, and they didn't want the press to know about it until mm-hmm. they could get it under control or do something about it, they could basically subvert uh, the open government laws by just slapping the word confidential in the subject line.
3: Correct. And the answer that I received from the county as far as how do you prevent this – They said training, uh, education, which I understand uh, public record law and, you know, government education needs to be given to county employees, uh, county uh, elected officials, all of those things. Education's great. I'm not knocking it. However, it is very questionable as to whether or not that's enough. Uh, at At a bare minimum, it might be conducive to see the county manager pick out 100 emails, mark confidential, and ensure that they actually are confidential. Pick them at random and see if there's any misuse of the system. And if that's the case, then you do go back and provide more education and perhaps even punishments, because it is breaking the law if you if you abuse this system. And we just have no way of knowing whether or not there's anything that shouldn't be deemed confidential uh, and again, at this point, I do plan on following back up with a uh, a more narrowly tailored request because I don't want county staff having to go through ten thousand emails and redacting line items. Right. That's the point I wanted to make: is that
0: you know, it's not written into the law, but there's a part of the spirit of the law mm-hmm. that journalists don't go on fishing expeditions where you're onerously taxing. Right. You know, the people's staff. Correct. I mean, the taxpayer money goes into these time. And you know, hours that people spend on these, so that's not what we're trying to do.
3: Yeah, I I, that would be way too much to ask them to go through 9,500 emails, um, and and redact them. But I, I would be willing to take you know 10 emails from each month, or maybe even 20 emails from each month. I don't think that's too much, too big of an ask. Uh, and pick them at random. I'll pick the date so they're not able to cherry pick and you know go with that and see if they do provide me with that redacted information. If they don't, I I don't know what will happen, but I will say there is legal precedent to uh to sue to have these records released. I'm not saying we're going to do that by any stretch. Uh that would be a decision way outside my pay grade, but that is uh even even a regular person, that's the point I'm trying to make is any citizen has legal remedies if your public records requests are going unfulfilled or if you feel that the governmental entity is violating open record law.
0: And as we've said uh, on this show, on the podcast, out in public many, many times, there is no crack unit <laughs> from Raleigh that parachutes in and holds local government accountable when they break these laws. It's only the public and the press that can do it. Yeah, there, there's nobody enforcing these laws. Well, I look forward to your follow-up in that case. Yeah. All right. Well, Michael Prats, WCT investigative reporter, thanks so much for coming by. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we need to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will have more with WHQR's own Rachel Keith as she sits down with Dr. Danielle Roseborough, UNCW's new chief diversity officer. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Back at the end of 2020, WHQR spoke to Dr. Danielle Roseborough, then the interim chief diversity officer at UNCW. The university had just settled a federal discrimination lawsuit that pointed out the significant racial disparities at UNCW. At the time, Roseboro told us about UNCW's plans to address these issues, which included a full-time diversity officer position. Since then, other local institutions have added similar positions. New Hanover County, the school district, and just recently, the city of Wilmington hired Joe Conway, who is also a WHQR board member. An outlier here is Cape Fear Community College, Recently, board member and head of the state's NAACP, Deborah Dix-Maxwell, suggested adding a chief diversity position, and President Jim Morton's response was lukewarm at best. CFCC is hiring for an HR position that would include some diversity, equity, and inclusivity duties, but it's not the cabinet-level position that the school, city, county, and university have all embraced. Looking back, many consider the murder of George Floyd to have kickstarted a lot of DEI efforts as institutions around the country faced increased scrutiny, both externally and internally. But the issues at hand date back a lot longer than the summer of 2020, and fixing them will no doubt take serious effort and considerable time. So what does a chief diversity officer do to tackle these problems? WHQR's own Rachel Keith Sat down with Dr. Roseborough, who recently took on the job full time at UNCW, to find out.
1: Dr. Danielle Roseborough, welcome.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: At the July Board of Trustees meeting, you were the interim diversity officer and you said you were ready to return to your work in UNCW's Watson College of Education. Now, You've accepted the position for this chief officer. What changed for you?
4: Well, I have an incredible commitment to the university and that was strengthened by the team that I work with in the Office of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion, the cultural center directors and our outreach organizer and every all of the staff in the office are incredible. And so I was strengthened by that. I was strengthened by all of the faculty and staff and the students I've had a chance to work with in this capacity because they are committed to making sure UNCW is a place of belonging for everyone. So given that, and given that we were unable to identify a candidate in the prior searches, it seemed like a good next step. What does a chief diversity officer do? A little bit of everything. What I see the role as is a lot of facilitation, a lot of networking, a lot of research, and some teaching. And so in all of that, we are looking at different aspects of diversity, equity, inclusion at the university, whether or not it's admissions, recruitment, retention of students, faculty and staff, whether or not it is our curricular offerings how we're supporting students through their academic journey, how we are offering support services for students through the student affairs in the residence hall, also how we connect with communities that we serve and engage with. It's all of that and more.
1: And these positions are growing in our community as the city of Wilmington and New Hanover County schools have recently hired these officers. The county hired one in June 2020. How would you like the community to view these roles and their purpose?
4: Suffice it to say, important or critical, and let me explain that. We have a lot of people who will say, yes, I recognize the importance of the role, but we don't necessarily understand that importance as it translates into the daily operations of a given unit, of a city, of a county, of a university, So, I would hope that people philosophically can say that they understand the importance of the role, but that they're actually there to help do the work to translate that belief into daily practice. Understanding then that means probably our work takes more time, it's more thoughtful, more intentional. It probably means that we need more resources or we need to reallocate resources differently, we need to prioritize differently. And we can do that understanding that it doesn't necessarily mean we're taken away from another group or another area.
1: So how would you define what diversity is?
4: At our university, we have a definition of diversity, of course, and it includes socioeconomic status. It includes ability, disability. It includes gender. It includes race, of course, ethnicity, language, diversity of thought and military affiliation. And so I love the fact that we are indeed a military-friendly university and we have an Office of Military Affairs and we have over 2,000 students that identify as somehow affiliated with the military. So most people don't think about that when they think about what diversity is. So it, it's helpful to me because it is the fabric of our existence and who we are as a people. So, in the public consciousness,
1: when we talk about diversity, you feel like people are primed to think of race.
4: They are. And I know it's important because I am a person of color as well. I also know that we have so many students that I've talked to that have different backgrounds, and a lot of them are first generation college students. So, being a first generation college student it comes with its own identity and its own fears. And at the university, we have to provide support for that because they are brilliant. What are
1: some of your short-term goals and what are some of your longer-term goals?
4: We are working on strategic planning right now. It's time for us to rethink our strategic plan. So our provost and our faculty senate and staff senate presidents are leading that charge along with our institutional research officer. So I say that first to say that we're still in process, but I also say that in the interim, we know that we wanna increase the diversity of our students, faculty, and staff. We want to make sure that this institution is a place of belonging. So we established four guiding principles last year that are shaping the work. That is that sense of belonging. That is that we are all accountable. Leadership in particular is accountable to this commitment for diversity, equity, inclusion but that everybody on campus is responsible for it. We all have some agency in the process and that we are concerned about representation. So that desire to increase students, faculty and staff that are diverse or from underrepresented populations is related to that guiding principle of representation. We also want to make sure that we're looking at our academic offerings to make sure that they complement the guiding principles that we have. We are doing that. We are also really partnering with our Office of Community Engagement, Dr. Janine MJ and her staff, to make sure that the ways in which we engage with communities, those ways are appropriate, that we are helpful and of service, bringing the expertise that we have, but also doing what actually communities need for us to do and not assuming that we know what's best for communities. When we
1: were talking about belonging, I remember at that July board meeting, the chancellor Sardarelli shared a freshman survey that showed stark differences in the way in which white and black students feel like they belonged on campus. Is this changing any? Do we have any follow-up data on this? I believe it was 62 percent of white students said they felt that belonging, and I think it was nine percent of black students said that.
4: Not yet. So we are in the process of actually hopefully collaborating with other UNC system schools to issue another survey that would actually gather some of that data for us. Hopefully at this point, a campus-wide one to follow up and hopefully see some improvement in those numbers.
1: And at this meeting, it was reported, you reported that it was a 6% enrollment rate for UNCW. Is this still the same for
4: Black students? It's about the same. So our undergraduate student numbers actually for underrepresented students went down slightly overall, but our overall student population went up, and overall our numbers look like they increased for underrepresented students, and that is in large part because our grad students, the number of underrepresented students in the graduate population went up. So we're doing, we're doing better, but we have to look more closely at the undergrad numbers to try to decipher what exactly happened. We don't know really yet, but we are investigating.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. You're listening to reporter Rachel Keith's conversation with UNCW chief diversity officer Dr. Danielle Roseboro.
1: Is it the university's goal to align the black student population rate with that of the state's overall population rate, which I believe is around 22 percent?
4: It's hard to say that is one measure that we look at because that's our context. Our context is national, it's state, it's also regional in terms of looking at what the population is of different underrepresented groups. So, yes, we do use that. But we also understand that we're within the UNC system. We are competing for students with our sister institutions, and that's a a challenge for us because it means we have to balance our academic expectations with the amount of financial aid or scholarships that we can offer to those students that other universities are competing for as well.
1: In the summer, you also said that the university has been doing better with retaining faculty of color and that there's been this concerted effort to interview these candidates.
4: Yes. And so let me be clear, because I just need to to make sure that everybody understands this process. Sure. When we say that we're focused on diversity, equity, inclusion in the faculty and staff hiring process, understand that we're always looking at what the market demographics say. So if we're looking at a particular position, we have professionals at the university who can pull the market availability for that position so they can look at how many folks that are white, that are African-American, that are Hispanic, are in that discipline area or that professional category so that at the very least, our search pool should mirror that market availability. And our challenge has been When it doesn't, then we know that we need to do some better outreach, some better advertising so that we can at least start from a decent recruitment pool and then track to see how people move through the process, which is a part of our new structure with diversity, equity, inclusion in the faculty hiring process. We have a pilot program now where we're paying really close attention to how diverse candidates move or don't move through the process to make sure that if we start with a representative pool, that that representation remains the same or comparable throughout the process. And if we lose underrepresented candidates in the process, then we're analyzing why. And sometimes it's because people just took jobs elsewhere.
1: This Board of Trustee meeting that I keep mentioning, there seemed to be a contention between Trustee Gidget Kidd and Malcolm Coley Kids said during your presentation on DEI, well, we still want to maintain the quality of our students. Trustee Malcolm Coley later said, we need to keep questions of representation and quality separate.
4: So that's interesting because I didn't see it as contention, but that's how I work, right? That spirit of debate is very much alive on our board of trustees and it's part of the reason we need them and appreciate the work that they do. And I value that because it means that we get all of the ideas out on the table and we discuss them. So what I appreciated about the conversation was that we put it out there. So, yes, there is an expectation that we admit students that meet the admissions criteria. What we don't want to assume is that when we say that we're trying to increase the diversity of our student population, that somehow that means those students don't meet the academic qualifications. That is not ever the case at all. (laughs) It's not the case. So we just needed to make that clear.
1: And in a recent Wilmington Biz Talk, they hosted Joe Conway, the city's chief equity and inclusion officer, and Linda Thompson, the county's chief diversity and equity officer. They spoke about the importance of you, Dr. Danielle Roseborough at UNCW, and Dr. LaShawn Smith, the chief diversity officer of New Hanover County Schools. In working together in this community, what would that collaboration look like for you between the four of you?
4: Well, I have to give them all due respect. They are amazing individuals, and it's been a pleasure to get to know them since my time at UNCW. Now that we're in this role, I'm in this role in particular in a permanent way, then I think there's even more possibility for building an infrastructure for the diversity, equity, and inclusion work. What I've loved, we have a, an existing partnership right now with Linda Thompson and the county with Sean Smith and the New Hanover County Public Schools and the Cape Fear Museum with the Race and Social Justice Institute panels. But that has been amazing because we collaborated in bringing the voices to the table and actually setting up the architecture of the panels and deciding what are the issues that we really want to discuss with the community. So I think that's a perfect example of the possibilities. I will say this. Of course, we know it doesn't stop with the dialogue So how does the dialogue translate into direct action in our schools, at the university, in different county spheres of influence, different city spheres of influence? So that's the long-term planning that we need to do together.
1: And Joe Conway of the city of Wilmington was talking about how important data collection Mm -hmm. is so that you all could figure out where the resources need to go and where the focus needs to go if there are gaps.
4: Yes, definitely. That has been one of my main points of request at the university, at least. And always, 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 we need to know what the data is. We need to be able to not know it, but to regularly pull it, to regularly share it, and to have different eyes on it to generate different conversations and questions about it. We look at student enrollment numbers all the time. We look at scholarship and financial aid numbers all of the time. The current question that we're asking is, what is the financial aid package for an underrepresented student that actually is the pivot point, the turning point to help them decide to actually commit to coming to UNCW? So those are the kinds of questions that we need to ask differently of the existing data that we have. And I love being able to collaborate with other chief diversity officers in this work.
1: And Joe Conway said something really interesting at the end of this Wilmington Biz Talk conversation about working within the business community on equity, diversity, and inclusion and belonging. Let's listen to what he said
4: just learn to apologize and forgive yourself. Um, you're not gonna get it all right. I don't get it all right all the time. And you know, it's, this is a process for all of us. And I think the biggest thing is, is just respect the individual that's, you know, sitting across from you that you may be talking on the phone with or that you're chatting with on social media and give them space to be themselves. What's your reaction to what Joe Conway said? I love that I needed to hear that myself. That would be my first reaction.
1: I think you mentioned that last summer, that this can seem controversial,
4: but it's not controversial work. It's our history, it is who we are. My other example that I like to use, because my daughters are also athletes, and as an athlete, they're always, with their coaches, reconsidering and reviewing what happened the last week. We study that so that we can be better the next week and not make the same mistakes. That is the same for diversity work. We don't get better by not paying attention to what happened yesterday.
1: I think he was also mentioning in that when you have a clash of ideas Mm -hmm. or when you're not used to something, you can get that pushback, but just kind of patience Mm -hmm. and trying to connect with people on a human level that we're all not perfect, but we're all trying to make our situations collectively better.
4: Yes, exactly, I think he said it beautifully.
1: Well, thank you for your time today, Dr.
4: Danielle Roseborough. Thank you again for having me.
0: All right. Well, that's just about all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Danielle Roseborough, Dr. Brooks Fuller, Michael Pratz, and our own Rachel Keith, as well as our technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. And if you're wondering why we didn't wait for Sunshine Week in mid-March to do this show, it's because, one, we'll have more on open government in honor of that week, and two, open government is important all year round. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.